Let's take our seats if we can. Um, not for the first time in my life, I was told in a roundabout sort of way this morning that I'm a big head. And uh, yeah, and um, it, was, it was Matt, Matt Tal Singh who told me this. And apparently it refers to the photo that I have on the website for the Connect Groups, which apparently is rather large. <laughs> so, as Matthew Henry's commentary used to say on difficult verses that I couldn't quite understand, let the reader stand in awe. <laughs> but apparently my head's going to be shrunk, yeah, which will be nice for all concerned. But uh, Jamie did ask me if I could uh, just uh, highlight that particular group, uh, which is a new Connect group starting uh, on Friday evenings, fortnightly. And um, it's looking at the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And we're going to be going through the first six chapters of that important but often neglected book. And it's an opportunity really for us to be equipped in uh, several things. One is how to study what we call the Old Testament, what the New Testament church simply called the Scriptures, how to study the Hebrew Scriptures, which are written under a different covenant, the covenant of Moses. How do we understand those Scriptures and how do we apply them to the covenant that we are now under, the covenant of grace in Christ? And it's an opportunity to really equip you in how to handle the Old Testament in a way that isn't just looking for the odd gospel nugget and pulling it out, but how do we actually study and benefit from the Hebrew Scriptures. So it's going to be taking quite a dense, close, line-by-line approach. There's going to be teaching, there's going to be interaction, there's going to be some group discussion, some pair work, and some individual assignment. It's going to be happening, as I said, alternate Friday evenings. Uh, and um, the one disadvantage, I think, from a Bradley Stoke point of view, is it's outside our parish boundary. <laughs> so it's happening down in Redland, which is actually at my, my place of work. I know, it's a long way. And... Um, if that is something that would be of interest to you, I know there's lots of great groups starting this term, but uh, because this is a new one, Jamie just asked if I could highlight that. So if that would be of interest to you, you're very welcome to uh, go ahead and sign up, and uh, I'll be in contact then with further information. So that's the Jeremiah Connect group. Okay, we're going to look together at the Word of God, so if you could turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Job. The book of Job. I know, your Bible falls open at the book of Job all the time, doesn't it? If you go to Psalms, you've gone too far. It's just before Psalms. Okay. As well as being told I am a big head, someone also said to me recently I was very strange. And they said I was very strange because I love, I told them I love the book of Job. I just love the book of Job. And they say, not many people say that, Al. But I just love it. I love its message. I love its feel. I love it as a piece of literature. I love, just love the way it, it, it equips and enables believers to really deal with some of the great existential issues of life. And uh, this particular chapter that we're going to look at really sets the scene for the whole book. You'll be relieved to know I'm not going to preach you the whole book, but just a few verses from the beginning. So in Job chapter 1, let's uh, read from the beginning of the chapter. Everyone got Job? Aha, good. In the land of Uz... That's a, great, that's a great way to start, isn't it? In the land of Uz, no one knows where that was, the land of Uz. So we're, we're, not, we're not too clear about the geography of this place. But that's where Job was from. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God 
and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, now we're moving from the land of us into heaven, right? Scene shift, here we go. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from, running, uh, from roaming through the earth and going to and fro in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There was no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. <clears throat> While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword. It was tough being a servant of Job, wasn't it? You were likely to get put to the sword. Put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from a desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we draw near in the name of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we're no ordinary people here today. We thank you we're your people gathered in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you've called us to be a holy dwelling of God in the Spirit. We thank you we're being built up to become that holy temple in the Lord. We thank you, Jesus, when we gather in your name. You're here among us. And we want to just quieten our hearts, Lord, and Look to you now 
and welcome you. And thank you for your presence. Thank you for your promise to be with us. Thank you for the promise of your spirit that you would teach us, that he would guide us, that he would make the things of Christ known to us. So we say, come, Holy Spirit, be our teacher, be our guide. Open our eyes. Equip us to do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Nobody likes losing, right? So, although all the professional pundits, with the exception of Roy Keane, did their best to console each of us after England's defeat and exit from this summer's World Cup tournament, and although we took pride in Gareth Southgate's professionalism and the surprising way that the young team exceeded our expectations by reaching the semi-final, and although we look ahead with optimism to Euro 2020 and the hope of a home team at least reaching the semi-finals, the fact of the matter is that losing hurts, doesn't it? As John Cleese said, as the uptight and under-pressure head teacher Brian Simpson in the film Clockwise, it's not the despair, Laura. I can take the despair. It's the hope I can't stand. We hate losing things. Of course, not all losses are equal. The loss of a football match may seem like the end of the world, but the loss of a job will probably have more of an impact on your life. Losing a role or losing a routine can be difficult to handle. The loss of relationship is painful through breakup, separation, desertion, divorce, or even in our hypermobile world through geographical moves. Many of us lose friends through people moving house, and sometimes that can uh, make us feel a sense of loss. Somehow staying in touch through Facebook doesn't quite fill the void, because actually God has created a world in which physical presence does matter. Um, Proverbs says, better a neighbor a brother, a neighbor near at hand and a brother far away. So actually, geographical proximity is important in our relationships. Losing our health, losing our mobility, losing our faculties of sight, of hearing, of memory, losing our faculties of speech, these can all be extremely distressing uh, occurrences. The loss we suffer through the death of someone we know and love is often the hardest, of course, and most grievous loss that we can experience as human beings. Shakespeare put it like this, woe, destruction, ruin, and decay. The worst is death, and death will have his day. Job was a man who suffered terrible loss. We've read about it in this story. He lost his wealth, he lost his possessions, he lost his assets, he lost his family, he lost his children. There was so much about him that he lost. And unknown to him, there were unseen spiritual forces at work behind the tragic events at the start of this book. And the Apostle James encourages Christians in his fifth chapter of his letter to learn from the example of Job, to, to take note of his patience, to take note of his faith. And it's in that spirit, therefore, that I want us to look at Job and to ask what we can learn from this man. So we're looking at the issue of how we can respond to loss. I actually felt uh, to prepare this message several months ago uh, without having any idea when it, I was going to be speaking it. And uh, when Jamie asked me if I could speak this particular Sunday, I did feel this was the right message, though I couldn't help noticing the fact that, yet again, my, uh, my message falls on what in some churches is called Back to Church Sunday. <clears throat> Back to Church Sunday is that time in the church calendar when we make an effort to regroup and to regather, particularly people maybe who've got out of the habit of going to church over the summer 
or even longer term. And so the idea was to kind of have a good, uh, a good service and uh, a nice upbeat, preppy message that everyone can feel encouraged by and uh, go away with a nice warm glow. And I took note of the fact that on the last occasion I preached on Back to Church Sunday, we were actually as a church preaching through the book of Revelation at that point. And my message on that occasion was the uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse and the wrath of the lamb. And today on Back to Church Sunday, I find myself led to preach on the patience and suffering of Job. I trust that it will be an encouraging message for you and that it will indeed engender faith and encouragement to you. How did Job respond to the terrible loss and the terrible suffering that came into his life? Well, when the tragic news came, he was devastated and he showed it. So the first thing he did was he grieved. We see that in verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. So the first thing Job did was he wept, he mourned, he grieved. And he uh, externalized his inner feelings. There was an internal grieving and there was an external ritual that he engaged in. The cutting of the hair is more than just a trim. He was shaving it off and the, r- the ripping of his garments. These were rituals that were associated with grief and loss, an inner emotion and an external ritual. Uh, a Jewish rabbi by the name of Aaron Moss said this, on the most basic level, the tearing of clothing is expression of pain and sorrow over the passing The law encourages, in fact, mandates such expressions as part of the mourning process. When somebody passes on, it is a tragedy. They have been lost to their family and friends, and there was a feeling of separation and distance that seems beyond repair. For this reason, we observe a seven-day intense mourning period during which the family sits at home and feels that pain and loss, followed by a year of mourning. Another rabbi um, wrote this, the most striking Jewish expression of grief is the rending of garments by the mourner prior to the funeral service. This still goes on in uh, many Jewish contexts. The Bible records many instances of rending the clothes after the news of death, when Jacob saw Joseph's coat of many colors drenched with what he thought to be his son's blood. He rent his garments. Likewise, David tore his clothes when he learned of the death of King Saul, and Job, who knew grief so well, stood up and rent his mantle. The rending is an opportunity for psychological relief. It allows the mourner to give vent to his or her pent-up anguish by means of a controlled, religiously sanctioned act of destruction. So there was an internal emotion and there was an external act to express Job's mourning. I don't know how many of you picked up on this article. It was um, published in the summer by Colin Brazier, or at least it was about Colin Brazier, who's a Sky News journalist. Uh, He sadly lost his wife to cancer this year. And uh, in the uh, invitation letter or the invitation that he sent to uh, mourners to come to the funeral, he asked them that they would wear somber clothing. And uh, this was picked up on by some of the media outlets. And uh, a number of articles were written about it. And from one article in The Spectator, um, we read this from Colin Brazier's original letter. He says this, it's unfair on children to insist that a funeral should mean rejoicing in a life now past. Think about that. It's unfair on children to insist that a funeral should mean rejoicing in a life now past. Maybe grown-ups can handle the cognitive dissonance required in celebrating a life rather than, you know, being all morbid. But I seriously doubt children can. Wearing black gives people license to be lacrimose. 
That means tearful. If you see someone blubbing outside a pub, wearing a black suit and tie, you have a clue as to why. Treat a funeral like Ascot's Ladies' Day, and not only does that trivialize death, but the spotlight of consolation shifts away from the family, where it would have been, had the congregation dressed uniformly. My darling wife would not have demanded that tears be shed for her, but she was enough of a realist to know that they would be. She knew the difference between a wedding and a funeral, and would expect guests to dress to reflect that. She suspected that asking people to dress up in bright colors was one small step away from an injunction to be jolly. He goes on to say this, quite a provocative letter. There's nothing funky about turning death into a fashion parade and a free-for-all of self-realization. It is asinine, and it inhibits, if it inhibits the necessary catharsis of the grieving process, it may end up being a mental health time bomb. The old stuff, the black and the solemn, works because it distills the wisdom of ages. So that's a modern perspective on this issue of the internal and the external issue of mourning. Uh, when I was a young Christian, a uh, brand new Christian in fact, I was in a Baptist church in um, South Devon, <clears throat> and there was a family in that church, small family, uh, a young mother and her son, single uh, mother, young son. The son was about seven or eight. Uh, I was a teenager at the time, and uh, this young boy had major behavioral problems. He was quite violent, he was quite aggressive at school, uh, in church, in different settings. He was a very disturbed young lad. And uh, what had happened was that this boy's father had died uh, a year or two previously. And uh, this boy had actually been excluded from the grieving process. I think probably with the best of intentions, presumably, on the part of the adults in his life. But he was not involved in the, the funeral, uh, the cremation, and so on. And um, the, the pastor of the church I was leading, at that, I was part of at that time, um, I think demonstrated real discernment and uh, pastoral skill. And he actually took this young boy and uh, the family under his wing, and he actually ministered some healing to this boy. And this is what he did. He took this young lad and his mother to the um, hospice where his father had spent his last days. And he explained to him, what a hospice was, what goes on there, how it all works. And they saw the bedrooms and the you know, different parts of the uh, facility, talked to the staff who knew his dad and so on. Uh, then uh, the pastor took the boy and his mother to the funeral home, and they saw a funeral home, and he saw a coffin. And he explained, this is a coffin, this is where the, you know, your father would have been put when he was dead, and explained what happens there, and people come to visit and to grieve. And he talked about the reality of death, with this boy, and he then took him to a crematorium, all, worked all this out, got permission, and uh, took him through essentially a, a cremation service, and showed him what happened. He didn't take him to the back, but he did it from the perspective of the uh, congregation. <clears throat> this is what happens, hymns were sung, words were spoken, prayers were prayed, and this is where the, this is where the coffin went, and this is what happens. And uh, what was fascinating was that this young boy, his behavior changed dramatically as a result of that intervention. And uh, he had many fewer angry outbursts. His behavior improved significantly. And it seems like something took place within him that hadn't taken place previously, that needed to take place. He hadn't really had a chance to, to mourn, 
and to say goodbye properly. So it's important. The Bible says there is a time for every activity under heaven. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time to weep. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to laugh. And so if we deny children or adults the reality of doing what that season demands of them, we're not serving them very well. And it was a fascinating uh, experience seeing this boy go through this. Now, I've got a little video I want to show you, um, which kind of brings together some of these themes. I just need a couple of caveats here so that uh, Mark doesn't take me outside and stone me. The video is not expressing things from an evangelical Christian perspective, okay? I don't know about the faith of the author. His name is Kevin Tollis. He's a Scottish writer. I don't know about his particular faith or lack of it, but the video is not expressing an evangelical perspective on death and dying, okay? Uh, if we were going to do that, we'd have a much broader uh, range of content. We'd want to talk about the blessed hope, for example, and the resurrection of Christ from the dead, and a few major themes like that. He doesn't refer to those. But what he does talk about is the human dimension of mourning and how that can be helped or hindered in the context of community. So if you see me running for the exit with Mark behind me, you'll know that it's not acceptable. But have a look at it and see what you think. And uh, we'll take it from there. If you've never been to an Irish wake and have only seen the movie version, you probably think it's just another Irish piss-up with few people round a coffin drinking pints of Guinness. But you would be very wrong. In my father's island off the coast of Mayo, people go to the wakes of their neighbours, they see dead bodies, they touch dead bodies, they take children to those wakes. So even an ordinary life, away from the medical profession, would have seen 20, 30, 50, sometimes 100 dead bodies. My father didn't want to die. He was uh, only 70. He was a very powerfully, physically fit man. But then he got pancreatic cancer. And pancreatic cancer is one of those cancers that no one ever recovers from. He was quite stoic about it. And more importantly, his community accepted his fate. They came to see him in the dying process. The house filled with visitors. So many visitors that you actually thought the house was celebrating a wedding feast. I was at the foot of my father's deathbed. And I looked around and there were 12 people in the room, some of whom I didn't know. And at that moment, the Imro Kinsha, the chief keener, struck up a very familiar Catholic prayer called the Five Sorrowful Mysteries. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us now and at the hour of our death. And then the, the chorus Return that other chant, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for sinners now and at the hour of our death. And when the chorus said that second verse, that sound grew louder and louder and louder in that room until it was almost the loudest sound I've ever heard in my life. And I saw in that moment that what these people were doing were cradling this man into death like a lullaby. And that this death was not a Western hospital, but a rite within an Irish clan, a way of dealing with death that was probably as old as the fall of Troy, a mechanism by which people could share their death, share this experience, learn about their own deaths, 
and also share this, normalize this within their community. Later the same day, my father, dead father, was taken. He was placed in a coffin and just moved a few feet away into the front sitting room. And there we had a full old-fashioned Irish wake where the women came, again, they're called the Imbro Kinsha, keening women, and they sort of controlled the stage of the wake. The emotional temperature, whether they cried and keened when a new mourner came in, there was a kind of wave of emotion which used to ripple through the room. It was a process by which you drained out emotion, where you moved on to the stages of acceptance of the death. And then, then we um, waked with my father the whole night through. During this wake as well, there were lots of children around. There were three-year-olds and five-year-olds playing at the feet of the coffin. The house was full of people talking, feasting, being served tea and sandwiches. The other thing about the Irish wake is people come in great numbers to the funerals. So my father, although he was a very ordinary man, had three or four hundred people who came to his funeral, who were also under a moral obligation to shake the hands of the principal bereaved. So it wasn't just enough for them to be there in the crowd. They all came up to you and shook your hands. And uh, as they shook your hands, they said it like a cliche, they say, sorry for your trouble. In fact, they shake your hands so many times that your hand, the bones in your hand begin to ache. This was a way of countering death denial because these individuals are shaking your hand, pressing into your flesh, and they're saying, it's not just sorry for your trouble, but they're dead, they're dead, they're dead, they're dead, they're dead. So you, at the end of that, that existential experience, it's very hard to then think they're coming back, which again is a very normal grief reaction. I think the best way to deal with death is not to invent a new ritual or appoint another priest caste of bereavement counsellors or medical professionals. It is to do what we've always done, and that's gather together as fellow mortals in the face of our mortality and seek to bridge that moment of bereavement and loss together. my distraction mechanism so Mark doesn't take me outside and stuff me up. So there's a time to mourn. The Bible says there's a time to mourn, there's a time to weep. I don't know I've spent a little bit of time on that, but it may be that for one or two, this is actually quite relevant now, and I guess for many of us it may be relevant in the future. Job's first response to loss was to mourn. Do you know how to mourn? That's my question. The second response was, he fell down and worshipped. We see it here in verse 20. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, 
Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now, many of us want to get to this point, or we want to help people get to this point when they suffer loss. And we want them to get a sense of peace that comes um, in that they can affirm that what's happened is under the control of a sovereign God. And we want them to experience the comfort that this truth brings, all of which is right, of course. And in the case of a Christian believer who dies, we want to comfort their loved ones with the reality of our sure and certain hope in the resurrection of the dead. And yet, we mustn't take people there before they've mourned. The Bible says there's a time to mourn. And in worshipping God, God, Job revealed some of his most deeply held beliefs and values. And it's as if he's mourning and worshipping simultaneously. The Apostle Paul said that. He said, we can be sorrowful, but always rejoicing. That's a paradox. And yet the Apostle Paul was able to live in that paradox. Sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Here's Job, mourning and worshipping. Worship is not the absence of sadness. You know that, right? Worship is not the absence of mourning or grief. It can very much be combined as part of it, if that's appropriate. And in worshipping God, Job revealed what was important to him. We note that worship was a meaningful part of his life before this tragedy struck. We see that he was an upright, blameless man who feared God. We also notice in um, Uh, verse 4 onwards, he had this practice of offering a sacrifice to God just in case his children had sinned. Did you you notice that in the story? Any of you who've got children sort of mid-teens to early 20s, perhaps you've had this experience that your children go off somewhere, right? A party or somewhere? And you've got this thought in your mind, I wonder what they're doing. Is this just me? I wonder what they're doing. I wonder who they're doing it with. I wonder what they're drinking. I wonder what they're ingesting. I hope they're all right. So Job gives hope for anxious suburban parents everywhere. That's what he did. He said, I don't know what's going on with my kids. They're having a party. It sounds like these parties lasted quite a long time. It talks about a season of feasting. And Job, after it was over, would offer a sacrifice to God and saying, I hope they haven't sinned and cursed God in their hearts. That's quite a devout action on his part. He was a worshipper long before this tragedy struck. And in worshipping God, Job uttered some of the most beautiful and profound words ever spoken or written in literature. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's worship uh, grew out of a soil that contained at least these convictions. Firstly, a conviction that he started his life with nothing. Naked I came from my mother's womb. So he believed that he began life owning nothing at all, which is factually correct. He was in his birthday suit. That was it. And in the prime of his life, he was one of the richest men in the world. But he didn't start life that way. He began his life with nothing. Secondly, he had a conviction that he would end his life with nothing. He uses an interesting phrase here. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb. That makes sense and naked I shall depart. Some translations say, depart there. What's, what's that talking about? Mother Earth? I'm not sure about that. It's probably he's just overcome with a bit of emotion. He's not necessarily articulating biblical theology. He's just saying, I came out naked, I'm going back there naked. And it's part of his worship, it's part of his mourning. He recognizes he's going to leave this world with nothing at all. The Apostle Paul makes a similar statement. We entered this world, we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing 
out of it. In his middle years, Job had already cultivated the wisdom and the humility to foresee how his life would end. He knew that the time would come when he would again be with nothing. At the moment of his death, he would possess literally nothing. Even the clothing that he lay dying in would be removed from him as his body was prepared for embalming and burial. He had that recognition. He also had a recognition between these two states, nothing when he was born, nothing when he died. He recognized that everything without exception between those two events had been added to him from elsewhere. It was not integral to himself. He started with nothing, he would finish with nothing. In between these states, however, he would receive a lot. Seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, that'd be handy, wouldn't it? 3,000 camels, five, they were actually very precious commodity camels in the Middle East, still today, to this day. 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. So without exception, Job saw that everything about his life, his wealth, his herds, his flocks, his property, his family, and his social status had been given to him ultimately by God. That's what he said, the Lord gave In speaking this way, Job is not denying the reality of human agency in his life from the moment he was born. Adults would have been involved in his care. He would have been brought up in a certain household. There was a Jewish um, uh, tradition that says Job was actually a descendant of Lot, the nephew of Abraham. We don't know if that's true historically, but it was a strong tradition within Judaism. And he would have inherited uh, certain values, certain beliefs, perhaps money, perhaps skills, He would have been trained up, and everything he received, he said, it was given to me, ultimately from the hand of God. And he had a recognition, fourthly, that just as things had been given to him, things could also be taken away from him. He accepted that reality. The belief that God has given you everything could make you arrogant. And certainly there's plenty of historical evidence of that. People who've got a lot, maybe in terms of wealth or power or status, sometimes That creates arrogance. They think, look how special I am. Or, even worse, look how special God thinks I am. He's given me all this stuff. Job didn't think like that. He didn't see his possessions as a reward for his virtuous character. He didn't see that it indicated that he was a more special person than those with less. He didn't believe in the arrogance of wealth or the arrogance of power. He saw that everything he had was given and everything could be taken away. And... That's why he could utter such an amazing prayer of worship. Just as he was not um, responsible for when things were given him, he was also not responsible when they were taken away. So he wasn't to blame for that. There were spiritual forces at work behind the scenes which Job knew nothing about. He just saw the storms and the fire and the the chaos and the invasion, the collapse, the raiding parties, the loss of status. That's what he saw and he recognized ultimately God was taking things away from him. He had an amazing perspective. Many um, of us, if we, if we read the book of Job and we read this chapter, we kind of want to stop there. We think grief followed by worship, happy ending. Actually, that's only the start of the book. And the next 37 chapters of the book deal with what Job did next. After mourning, after worshiping, the third thing he did was he struggled. He struggled. And that's one of the reasons I love the book of Job, because he's asking these big questions about why and how, and how is he to make sense of what's happened to him. And he's struggling about the whole issue. 
And did you know you can mourn and worship and struggle all at the same time? It's okay to do those things. Struggling with these big issues isn't a sign of unbelief. It's not necessarily a sign that you don't uh, believe in the sovereignty of God. It's perfectly okay. Job struggled. We see similar issues uh, in the life of Jeremiah. We see it in the Psalms. Some of the Psalms deal with these issues. Why do the wicked prosper? You know that one? Um, think of the New Testament. Think of the believers in Revelation. You know that passage where they're, they're the beheaded saints are under the altar in heaven and they're crying out to God, How long, O Lord? How long? So they're struggling with what's happened to them. And that's part of legitimate Christian faith. It seems to me a great tragedy when we allow the atheists to take this issue and to look at it only from an atheist perspective. It's one of the big issues in atheism, the so-called philosophical problem of suffering. If there's a good God, why does he allow bad things to happen? It's a big philosophical question. And if we're not careful, we can give that question just to the atheists. Stephen Fry has a view on that, but the reality is biblical men and women of God with a faith in the God of the Bible also dealt with those same issues. And we mustn't deny ourselves the opportunity to do it as well. It's not biblical just to say mourn and then worship. Because for Job, it was mourning, worshiping, and struggling. And in the course of his struggle, he eventually came to an even bigger understanding and perspective on God, even though he didn't get all his questions answered. We mustn't just see the, the so-called problem of suffering as something that we kind of hand over. We can, we can deal with the problem of suffering from a faith perspective. It doesn't have to be dealt with only from an unfaith perspective. Does that make sense? Okay. If you're suffering loss of any kind in this season of your life, please accept that it is inevitable. It is inevitable. Don't blame yourself. You've not done wrong. <clears throat> the uh, Job's friends lived under this kind of mindset. If you're good, good things happen. And if you're bad, bad things happen to you. And many Christians have that same mindset. It's, it's, it's sad. It's a Deuteronomic mindset. The curses and the blessings of the law, right? Do this, it'll go well. Don't do this, you'll get hammered. You know those passages in Deuteronomy? Many Christians live with that mindset. And uh, it's not New Covenant. It's not New Covenant. And Job, actually, in many ways, was a New Covenant man living in the Old Covenant era. His friends were certainly Old Covenant in their thinking. If you've, done, if you've done wrong, that's why these bad things are happening to you. It's not true. And God vindicates Job, actually, in the end, and rebukes his counselors, his friends. Don't blame yourself if bad things are happening. Doesn't mean you're rubbish. Doesn't mean you're a bad person. Doesn't mean you're failing in some way. There's all sorts of mysteries going on that we don't have a clue about. Paul says this about these things. He says, we're like children looking, at a, uh, looking for a mirror, the dim mirror. He says, now we only see in part. Then we'll see fully. He says, now we're like children. Then we'll be like adults in the fulfillment of the ages. We don't really understand what's going on. Accept what is happening. Give God glory now and keep going when things are removed. And if you know anyone who is suffering loss or who will do in the future, please understand they do need your physical presence. That bit, Job's friends did get spectacularly right. They did come and visit him. They did sit on the ground with him. They did spend a long time with him, just being there with him. 
Your friends need that if they suffer loss. Your physical presence, mourn with them, cry with them. Let them go at their own pace. Walk with them. Don't blame them. It's a strange message. It took me by surprise. I, I feel God wants to say this to us this morning. And I do feel it's for some particular individuals now. But I think there'll be application down the road as well. But if we can do what the Apostle James said, to learn from the example of Job, when we suffer loss, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to worship. And it's okay to struggle. That's what we can learn from the example of Job. Can the uh, musicians come up, please? We're going to worship God together and take some of these themes, turn them to worship, turn them to praise,